are here today. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. We are actually getting close, um, believe it or not, we're already getting close to the end of this letter. We're closing in on those closing passages uh, from the point that the author began. Uh, it's all been about Jesus' superiority and the superiority, the, the greatness of his of who he is and the greatness of his work in contrast to everything that had been seen to date. Um, but as a good sermon goes, you guys probably didn't just see what just happened, but there's a bug that landed here. Sorry, threw me off. Probably Anyway, uh, as a good sermon goes, it, it's never just about the transfer or the sharing of information. There's always a point at which the person listening is brought to a place, so what? So what do I do? And that's really where we're at in this letter uh, of Hebrews, is he's at the place where he is making application and helping people see how this matters for daily living. Now, to this point, if you think back on the last two weeks, which really we started this two weeks ago, if you think back on these last two weeks, you're going to realize the points of application have been focused more on the inner person, faith and endurance in that faith are driven more. They're, they're more uh, work of the mind and the heart, right? It's, not a, it's a head and heart kind of thing. It's not really, we've not really yet dealt with what does this look like once that head and heart have influenced our hands and our feet and that we're actually putting this to action. And so this week, you're going to see he, he, he moves directly to that. That's where the passage is going to pick up. We're going to start in verse 14. But in addition, I want you to see that that he is, he is almost completely been looking back to this point. There have been glimpses of him looking forward, but he's almost completely been looking back, looking back to the old covenant, to the, to the work that God had been doing in history, in the redemptive history, and the redemptive plan that he had. And today, we're going to get a clear glimpse of what's coming, and that's part of why it matters so much that we continue to endure in faith. And so these perspectives. These, these two ideals are really going to be drawn out in this next passage as we read it. So Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to read three verses, read verses 14 through 29. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one f- fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, or see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. 
But now he has promised, yet once more, I will, not, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be great, grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us now? I, I pray for just my own mind, my own heart, my, my limited ability. That in faith, I, I would just proclaim what you intend, that I would be able to speak words of truth. I pray, Father, that by your spirit, those words would do what I'm incapable of making happening by your spirit, that they would penetrate past the eardrums and, and into the hearts and minds of your people, and that by them you would, you would both encourage us, give us direction, and give us a glimpse of what we're hanging on for, what we're, what we're enduring towards. I just pray that now, Father, we'd be able to set aside the things that are waiting for us when we leave this room, that we could we just sit with you. We'd be with you. And as a result, our lives would, would reflect that when we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I told you last week that I don't like to run. I think it's probably pretty clear if you look at me that I'm not built for it, right? I'm, more of a, I'm built more for torque, for short spurts of power. Not, not, not I, I don't like to run. This passage, I bring that up again, not to make fun of myself, although there's plenty to be made fun of here. But I bring it up because this passage sits, it resides in the context of this image that Paul, or not Paul, I'm sorry, this is not Paul, maybe it was, we don't know, the author of Hebrews, that he has painted, this picture he's painted for us of us running a race with endurance, right? Like this enduring in faith until we reach the end, of, until we cross the finish line. And so last week, I just started just, remind, just letting you know how much I dislike running. Well, I, I still do. This week, I still dislike running. I've never been a fan of it, probably not ever going to be a fan of it, but I used to do quite a bit of it because the Army said so, like, you're going to do it. So what do you do? You, you run. One of the things that made running almost bearable, almost, was that I didn't ever, almost never, ran alone. We'd show up, PT day, we'd do our jumping jacks, our push-ups, our sit-ups, flutter kicks, did a, you know, whatever they were making us do that day. And by making us do that day, I mean making me do, because some people were voluntarily doing it. I wasn't there to... Anyway, I digress. Let's keep going. What they would do at the end is we'd all form up four columns, you know, uh, and we would take off running, singing cadence all along the way, hopefully helping you learn to breathe and be comfortable, keeping your mind off of it. Here you're in this group. Now, I know that the author of Hebrews' intent is not to draw out this perspective of us all running in formation together when he spoke of the race of endurance. But I don't think his intent either was to isolate us so much in the way that I believe in the American mind we automatically begin to isolate and make ourselves independent and see ourselves running alone. He's writing this letter to a 
group of people who are all running this race. And whether we realize it or not, we've all been called to run in step and in formation, singing the same cadence. And I think there's a beautiful picture of it happening here, a beautiful picture of what we see. So I don't like running on the street in a physical way. But I want to call you, as we walk through this passage, let's, let's run this race together. Let's really hear what he's saying so that we can run in step, singing the same cadence. See, here's the thing is that this, 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 this way in which he set us up, it certainly starts in each of our hearts and minds. It certainly is this inner person that is, that is recognizing the truth of what we're believing and our hearts are devoted to it. And, and now we're committed to, to run until, run until we get to the finish line, to run as if we're seeking to, to win the race. But he has never intended this just to be a fight of the inner person. In fact, if you go back to, the, to, to just a few verses earlier, if you got your Bibles, just flip back up to Hebrews chapter 10. These verses, are, I, I don't believe I put them up so that you, they'd be on the screen for you, but, but just flip back in the, in the pages, Hebrews chapter 10, where, where he really began to describe what this would look like and how application would be worked out. He's already set this out for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Stop right there. Just stop and think about this. Here already is the call to endure in faith. Right? Not just faith for the moment, but faith for the future. That's what hope is. It's looking forward and knowing with certainty, confident expectation of what's to come. Look forward, hang on, Without wavering, this is an endurance call. This is a call to endure in this way. Why? Because God, the one who's made these promises, is faithful. And immediately, that fight for the inner person to do these things is directed to the outer person and the group that we've been called to run with. Let us consider, verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, so here we've already had a synopsis of what he's been working towards. We've already had a summary and masterfully, if, 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 if I could just say so, because he set us up to see that and then he broke out each of these three, th- these three sections, faith, endurance, and running together in a masterful way. If I ever become half the preacher this guy apparently was, You'll probably appreciate that. But it is beautiful when you watch it happen because then what he does is he comes to the end of chapter 10, verse 39, and reminds us again not to shrink back that we, this this communal we, are not those who shrink back. We aren't those who stop enduring. We are those who endure in faith. And then in chapter 11, he begins immediately to expound on what faith is. And I happen to catch, my, catch faith's eye. It's not a person, right? It's the expression of trust. It's the believing God. It's the dependence upon him. It's hearing his word, knowing it's true, and, and assenting to that truth, and then leaning into it, trusting it as if it's crutches that are holding us up or chairs that we're sitting down into. It is a trust. And he breaks that out all the way through chapter 11. And then when we get to the front of chapter 12, he starts to speak of how that faith must endure. 
And he speaks and expounds on what it is to endure in the run. And we saw last week these different perspectives of how we're to endure, endure in discipline, seeing struggle and hardship for what it is, not what it appears to be, that kind of thing. Remembering those who remind us of God's faithfulness, right? We're enduring in these things, enduring with our eyes on Jesus, remembering that, that he's done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so in this way, we, we see that endurance. And now he comes to verse 14, and he's going to begin to expound on what it looks like. To, not, to, to encourage one another to love and good works until when? Until the, day, uh, uh, until the end comes, but all the more until the day, as, as the day draws near. That's the idea. And so now he's, he's breaking out for us. Now, what does this life together of enduring faith look like? I'm going to give you four points. We'll walk through them. Four, four main points. We'll break down each one just a little bit. But the first one I would point to in verses 14 through 17 are that Christians endure in faith together by living for the glory of God and the good of God's people now. Right now. Not tomorrow. Not when, when things seem like, okay, well, that's, that's the time when I'll start doing it now. It's the present reality that he calls us to live in, walk in, act in towards one another. Much of this p- passage focuses forward, but these Three verses, four, I guess, really, 14, 15, 16. Yeah, these four verses focus on the now and how we live together now. First, he calls us in verse 14, immediately, the very first action is is a view of other people, the first active way in which our head and heart, the, the endurance in our head and heart works itself out in our hands. Strive for peace. The command is not make peace. That's ours. Jesus has, he's the peacemaker. He's he's the one who's done it. Our only hope for peace is that he's provided peace. You can go back and look at that Ephesians 2. That that, that is the perspective of the church of that day is that he is the peacemaker. One of the very first commands in Ephesians 4, the very first commands in Ephesians 4, in the book of Ephesians, is in Ephesians 4, and that is a command to Strive for peace. The same idea here. We're not making the peace. We've been shown all the way through the letter of Hebrews how Jesus has actually given us peace. And now we're being called to live in it. In fact, let me just show you one way. Slip back up just a little bit. Just a couple of verses to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Look at what he says. So in verse 11, he has, he has just described how, how discipline is difficult, but God is treating us as sons. And he comes down to this place, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's the reality, that in this process of us enduring, in this process of us enduring in faith, in this process of God disciplining us as children, he is working out in us what he has already put in us. He's training us so that we can actually begin to do the things he's created us and enabled us to do. He's saying, look, you're being disciplined so that you can walk righteously, so that you can walk in a way that's honorable before God. But what does righteousness look like? Peaceful. Peaceful. Righteousness 
is always peaceful. Now, it may not always appear peaceful to, to people around us. Just be, be careful as we do this, and we're going to see how this works out in a minute. Righteousness produced in us by God's work is associated with peace in us. You go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. God created everything, and everything was good. There was harmony. Everything was right. It was, as, as, it was out without any flaw, without, any, uh, without any, uh, uh, any, anything evil or anything that was marred or flawed in any way. And it was harmonious. Mankind was going to subdue the earth, going to work it, and it was going to produce fruit, and it was going to be productive. Relationship together. They were naked and without shame. No division. They walked with God in the cool of the garden. Intimate relationship. The serpent comes in, tempts them, deceives them. And division at every level follows because they sinned. Separated from God. Separated from one another. And now the, the creation that they're to rule and subdue is not going to Submit under their hands. And you can follow that all the way through. The very next relationship that we see is that of brothers, Cain and Abel. Abel, offering an acceptable sacrifice in faith, is killed by his brother Abel because he's jealous. Because sin divides and destroys. And you can watch it happen over and over and over and over. To the point that Jesus steps in. To the picture, and we begin to see him assemble his kingdom and assemble his people. And he calls them even a gathering, an assembly. He's drawing them out of the world so that they can be his, so that they can, so that the recognition is that they are his. And over and over and over, every New Testament letter calls us to unity and peace with one another. And 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 our author here now turns and says, Look, this peaceful fruit of righteousness. This work that's being produced in you by God's discipline, you are now responsible, every last one of you. You strive for peace. And what he's saying is not just you, everyone sitting around you, strive for peace. And so you just consider this. I mean, if a person's life is, is marked with enmity, strife, and, and anger, and, and division, and, 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 and they're always seeking to start a fight with you, and, and it's, they're, just, they're just harmful, hurtful people. There's something wrong there. There's something wrong with that picture. We don't abandon it. We don't condemn. We're not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you attack it, right? Because we're striving for peace. We're doing what we can. We're doing what we're able to strive for peace. But we live in a world in which not everyone is going to strive for peace. And we're called to endure in this process, to endure in striving for this peace and in working towards it. But he adds to that. Look at this. He adds to it. Verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse, verse 14, he adds to it. Strive for peace with everyone and immediately, without a, lot of, without a lot of disconnect, peace and holiness. Like peace, this is a pursuit of something we've already been given. God has made us holy. He's made us distinct. He's, he's treated us distinctly, his people. He's treated us as sons, as his children. He's not treated the whole world that way. 
He's made us holy. He's, he's purifying us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us more like himself because God is holy, and he's made us holy. And now essentially what he's saying is, I've made you holy, so act like it. I've made you righteous, and I'm making you righteous. Practice that. You do it now. If it's true of you, you put it to practice. And this is so important. This is so necessary for us. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The author tells us, without holiness, no one sees the Lord. But if you've been made holy, the responsibility of every person who's been made holy is to make sure that that holiness is reflected in their life. Right? This is, this is the way it works. Our head, our heart... It leads to our hands, and so we strive for peace with one another, strive for holiness. Now let's put those two things together. Because I think they actually work together based on the way the language works. But when you put these together, you begin to see that, that this call for peace is not to be pushovers. It's not to, it's not to uh, compromise anything of God's holiness in the way we live and act. So let's just play this out. Let's work it out in a scenario. So, so, so right now, the world would have the church compromise on things like sexual morality, marriage, uh, oh, oh, any number of things. Any number of things. The world would have us agree with them, demands our agreement with them over any number of moral things. Right? Like, like it, it, it's, it's where we're at. So we can't live at peace in a world that has rejected God. Doesn't mean we are jerks to them, right? I'm, I'm not giving you permission to go to your neighbor and beat on them with your King James Bible into submission and thinking that in some way that's going to get them to be peaceful, holy people, right? That's liable to get you shot, but that's not probably going to work with them. There's still a kindness, there's still a way in which we act that we don't seek to escalate tensions and escalate, but there will be no peace with people as we strive to follow the Lord, as we seek to honor the Lord, there will be people who we will come into contention with and we are not to back down because peace and holiness work together. But where should we find peace and holiness at work? Right here. Right here. Because among God's people, if we're all running the same direction, to the same cadence, singing the same praises, <laughs> what kind of person does it take to kick out a leg and try and trip the person running next to them? I mean, that's what really what we're talking about, right? Like, that's the kind of stuff that... We call that stuff out. That's not, that's not working together. That's not us being together. That's not us living in peace and holiness together. There's a way in which this, the, the intention should be that while we're, we're not running out into the world to be jerks, we are striving as much as is possible to be a peaceful people because peace accompanies the righteousness that we've been given in Christ and that he is shaping in us through his discipline, which feeds this sanctification process and this growing in holiness and pursuit of holiness so that together, together, we look more like the one who saved us than we did when he first saved us. 
Endure in this is the call. It's to keep after this. And, and this is not, this is good for one another. This is good for, for us, but it's also very glorifying to God. It, it shows him in a world that's seeking to reject him at every turn, who's running from him. It demonstrates the glory and goodness and grace of God at every turn. But he's not done yet. We've just got into the very first part of the first verse. You look again in verse 14, and you can see, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And then verse 15, he's going to tell us, see to it. Now, he's about to tell us, you got you to do this. This is your responsibility. Each and every one of you, this is your responsibility. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by, by it many come, become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So, so there's this see to it statement that's attached to three other statements. And I'll just summarize it this way, that we're to keep watch on one another. Well, I used this illustration a few weeks ago. It comes up every time we bring up Abel. Uh, we are to be our brother's keeper. We're supposed to keep an eye on one another. Be on guard for one another. Well, well, for what? The first thing, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Obviously, we are clearly limited. We are clearly limited on our ability to, to, to force someone or to actually get someone to obtain God's grace. We are clearly limited in that capacity. But I, I would just say, I would say this. I think the author of Hebrews has given us a clear example all the way through this letter of what he's intending in this, in this phrase. He has taught the truth, expounded on the superiority of Christ and superiority of Christ's work, and called repeatedly, warned repeatedly, don't let this go, and encouraged repeatedly, exhorted repeatedly, keep your eyes on Christ. And I think that's what he's calling us to, to be these people who are watching out for one another. And if it appears, if it appears that someone's not obtaining the grace of God, that someone's faltering or, or, or slipping away, that we do all we can to remind them of who Jesus is, tell them the truth, speak truth in love, and warn them of what happens if they reject the truth of Christ and exhort them to cling to Christ and Christ alone. I believe that's what he's getting at. Do, do everything you can. Keep watch on one another. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So it, it, that even has a, an application outside the body of believers because we should be a people who the world knows us more for the proclamation of Jesus Christ than our favorite teams, our, 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 our political perspectives, our stance on I I infections and pandemics and vaccines and masks. But I don't believe that's who the church, and I'm not just saying this church, I don't believe that's who the church's been for some time. At least generally speaking in America, we've sought awfully hard to look like the world so that we're not offensive to the world, so that they don't even know when we're speaking truth to them. But they should hear, in some way, they should hear us speaking truth in love warning of rejection of Christ and offering the hope that comes with turning to him in faith and clinging to him, enduring in that faith. We're severely limited. Every week I recognize that. Every week I stand up here. Last week, I'll just be honest, last week I, I was preaching as much to myself in that moment as I was preaching to, to, to you all. I, I, there, there's some weeks that I step up here and I'm, I'm, I'm believing it, 
but I'm only half believing what I'm preaching because there's stuff in my life that I'm struggling with myself. But, but listen, brothers and sisters, I, I know the limit I have of getting those words to you. But it's a good thing the Spirit can do something I can't do. Right? That's, that's what we're dependent upon. We're, we're to keep watch on one another, absolutely, but that message shouldn't stop at one another. That message, that truth, that, 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 that warning of, of rejection of Christ and that exhortation to turn in faith to him should be the message we are known for. It should be the word that we speak. We just sang a song. We get to speak a better word. We get to, we, we get to speak a, so much, a word that's so much more hopeful than vaccines and masks. Yeah, I'm not saying don't think wisely about those circumstances. Certainly think wisely about those circumstances. But we get to speak a word of hope that's eternal, that never changes, that looks beyond the time that we face on this earth to a time that lasts forever, to a kingdom that won't be shaken. Make sure, keep your watch on one another and make sure that everybody can obtain God's grace. Make sure, he says, that none of you develop a root of bitterness or that no root of bitterness develops among you. Then make sure that it doesn't spring up. And, and the reference here is back to Deuteronomy 29, 18, where, where, where Moses writes, Beware, lest there be any among you, a man or a woman or a clan, a tribe whose heart is turning away to, today from the Lord our God and to go serve the gods to, of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Be, beware that if there's this root developing in your hearts or the hearts of your people that is turning you from God, that's leading you to a place where you're angry with him and bitter about him and, 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 and then that's perceived or, or, or being bled out on people because it's not just God that this is against. Many will be defiled by it. If you see in the hearts of your brothers and sisters enmity, strife, envy, gossip, and, and clamoring for position and trying to be a people that look like the people of the world and not walking in peace and holiness. It's driven by this bitter root that's producing bitter fruit. Love one another enough that you won't stand for it and then you say something. There's no place for that among God's people. If you see your brother or sister rejecting the truth, dishonoring God, devoting themselves to lesser gods, know that this is a bitter fruit produced by your bitter root, and you've got to dig that thing out. And just know this is hard, difficult, messy work. But it's a work that's right and good and valuable. And he goes on. Make sure, watch out for one another that no one follows Esau's example. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now, now I, let's just be clear. The, the Bible, you go back and read Esau's story, and the Bible doesn't say anything really about him being sexually immoral. But the word in the Greek is the word pornos that, that is um, associated with sexual immorality. But also unholy or godless is the idea here. Make sure that no one acts like Esau did. What did Esau do? If you know the story, you know what Esau did. He would come in from the fields one day, came in so hungry that he gave his birthright, his position, and all the blessings that were due him, he gave them away for a bowl of soup. I don't know. I, I, I feel like I make a pretty good chicken noodle soup. But I guarantee you, 
it is not worth your birthright or the inheritance that God has promised his people. But Esau, boy, Esau, hey, just give me some of that soup. Give me your birthright. It's yours. Like, there's no indication of debate or wondering or stumbling, fumbling with the idea of it. It's, it's yours. Give me the soup. I'm hungry. He's giving in to his carnal desires, his physical pleasure, this momentary desire he's giving into without even considering the weight and the value of what he just gave up. He absolutely profanes the beauty of this birthright. And then what happens? Now, the Bible, or Hebrews doesn't talk about Jacob's deceitfulness. And I think the reason is, is because it didn't matter at this point. Esau had already made his mistake. The birthright wasn't his anymore simply because of how he treated it. Now, Jacob's not better. Jacob has his own sin. Like, if you go back and read that story, he, he's not a great guy either. But Esau had already profaned his birthright. He'd already given away any right. And so when he goes pleading for it, when he finds out, oh, I really lost it. It's not there to be had. How, how many times have, have we sat alongside people in church and family members, church family members, that when they walk away, their life just blows up even worse? And I, I, I don't know where this guy stood. I was reading my Bible at work one day, sitting out in, in the hangar. It's back when I was still at Worldwide, reading my Bible one day at break. And a guy walks by me. And he enters into this conversation. And I didn't really ignore him, but I really was just trying to get my Bible reading done for the day. <laughs> like, you're keeping me from reading my Bible. Don't you know what you're doing? Well, he made a statement that obviously was, it, he's like, I'm just hoping that I'm good enough that when God sees me, it should have been the prime opportunity. Brother, I can, I can tell you how you can find confidence and hope and certainty. I didn't say a word. I said, I, I get it. Two days later, two days later, that guy quits. And I have looked for him since, and I have never been able to find him. Now, I'm not, I, I, what I'm saying is, I don't know what's happening. I don't, that, he, he could be dead and gone. And I, I just totally allowed him to just to walk off into nothing and The author of Hebrews is saying, we cannot do that. You see somebody stumbling. You see somebody fumbling. You see somebody profaning the rights that they have, the, the benefits and the blessings that they have in Christ. And you, you go after them and you ensure, you do all you can to ensure that no one or, or that everyone that, that can, can obtain the grace of God, that, that no one um, lives in this root of bitterness and no one follows after Esau's example, he gives themselves to these pursuits of pleasure. And once they realize what they gave up, they find out it's too late to ever really have it. We have to care for one another. The, the striving for peace and holiness, the watching out for one another, is how we encourage. This is how. This is the how to encourage one another to love and good works. How do we do that? This is how we do that. And we move past this inner man that immediately we begin to focus not on self but on one another. Running in, in, in cadence and, and in step with one another. 
We endure in that. We continue to endure in that. Christians endure in faith together by living for the glory of God and the good of God's people now. And he keeps going, verses 18 through 24, and I would, I would summarize the point here in these verses, 18 through 24, Christians endure in faith together because we are the people of Mount Zion, now, not Mount Sinai. And there's this beautiful contrast that happens here, this beautiful showing of, of the fear and the trembling associated with Sinai and the, and, and the limited access to God associated with Sinai and the beauty and the joy and the intimacy associated with Zion. Tom Schreiner, one of the commentators that I'm reading from, he makes this point in his commentary when he writes that, that this is, that, that, that we are a people of Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. He says this is the fundamental reason the believers should endure. He goes on, Hebrews helps us imagine the difference between the two, for Zion and Sinai. He helps, it helps us see the difference between the two. For the author paints in striking colors the difference between paralyzing terror and extraordinary joy. And you see it right here. You just step into verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They didn't even want to hear God's voice. They were so afraid. Can you imagine that? We pray to hear God's voice. We long to hear from him. Can you imagine the people that are actually hearing him that are so terrified that they don't want to hear him say another word? Moses, you've got to speak for us. You've got to talk to us. Then he goes on, though. He says, if, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the picture. It's a physical place. A place that you could see and touch, that you could hear and experience in physical ways. And, and their ancestors, the ancestors of these people, absolutely did. After being delivered from Egypt, they walked to the base of Mount Sinai, led to the base of Mount Sinai, where they see fire and smoke, lightning and thunder. And God's speaking. And they are absolutely paralyzed. They are absolutely terrified with fear. The author stresses just how terrifying it was, even if an animal touched it. Any, that, that animal must be stoned. Moses himself sensed the terror and the fear. Moses, the man who God had already spoken to through a burning bush. Moses, the man who had gone in at God's command and spoken on God's behalf and led the people out. Moses, the one who worked powerful things by God's power through him. Moses recognizes, even Moses, it says, trembled with fear. There's this horrific, frightful, horrifying picture being painted. But, it says in, in verse, uh, somewhere around verse 19, I think, or 20, for they could not endure the order, no, verse 22, but, I can't find it, numeral but, yes, verse 22, thank you. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. But there's immediately a contrast being felt. That automatically you're, you're set up for this, this, wait a minute, there's another perspective here. There's something else offered here. You have come. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and, and brothers, and cities, brothers and sisters, let me just hear, recognize and, and, and say this. Mount Zion, there, there is a physical place associated with this. 
You go back into, into the Old Testament, you can see that David went and, 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 and was on, on this hill, hill that was called Mount Zion. He, he, th- there's a physical location even today that you can go near the old city, just outside the old city of Jerusalem that, that's named Mount Zion. But the perspective of Scripture is not always focusing on that physical location. In fact, as you look back into the Psalms, Zion is God's holy mountain on which he dwelt. Psalm 2.6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 132.13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has de- desired it for his dwelling place. There is a physical location, but, but, but don't miss it. In the, in the way that it works here, there's, there's a bigger spiritual truth being revealed. In the book of Revelation, Zion is contrasted against Babylon. Babylon is representative of evil, sinful uh, systems and structures, affluence and, and, and immorality. Zion is God's holy and eternal city. Babylon will be destroyed and Zion will stand forever. Here, the book of Hebrews, the author points to to show us that this isn't just some physical hill that somebody can go up on top of, but this this is a spiritual reality. You have come to the city of the living God. This is the place that he's marked out that he said, it is mine. I am here. Now, it's a heavenly Jerusalem already pointing us to look beyond what can be seen in the physical realm. Angels in festal gathering. You're coming to this Mount Zion where there are angels in festal gathering. That's a picture of celebration and joy assembled among the firstborn. Or, or, uh, the, you're coming to the assembly of the firstborn. And, and look at this. Who are enrolled in heaven. This is verse 23. Who are enrolled in heaven. Heaven. There's a spiritual reality that we belong to another place. We are the assembly of the firstborn. We are Jesus's people, and we are enrolled in heaven and to God. We're coming to Zion, and when we do, we come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's this beautiful picture all the way through Hebrews where, where we're seeing Jesus perfected, and then he comes to this place in which He begins to show us that through Jesus, we are also perfected. We are the righteous brought to completion, to full righteousness. And we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Brothers and sisters, there is this beautiful picture, this beautiful contrast being drawn out. We're enduring in faith because we are the people of Zion. We are people whose citizenship is in heaven. We are people who have come to God, not limited by access. If you go back and look at what's going on in Sinai, these people are so frightened. They're staying distant from him. They're, they're so terrified. They're asking Moses to go and stand between them. They, 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 they are doing everything they can to cower and hide. But at Zion, these are a people who are coming close, who are no longer afraid of the judgment God offers because we've been sprinkled by a blood that sufficiently and fully cleanses us, makes us righteous, makes us acceptable, makes us able to stand in the presence of a holy God. It's Jesus, the mediator, who has sprinkled us with that blood. He is the, 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 the prophet that stepped out into, into the world and he proclaimed this eternal and unshakable kingdom and he is the priest who's brought us able to enter into that kingdom by the by the by the sufficient and sacrifice of himself on our behalf in our place and for our sin 
Instead of coming to a place of God, to, in which God was distant and terrifying, we have come to him in a, in a way and in a place in which we can boldly enter his presence because we didn't come to him at Sinai. We have come to him at Zion. We are his people of Zion. And you just think about this. Just consider it. At least in Scripture as we understand it, there are really only two paths offered. God enters into covenant with people at multiple times, multiple places in the Scripture. But in our sin, there are only two ways in which he offers approaching him. By his law, perfectly fulfilling it, or by his grace, offered through the one who did perfectly fulfill it. Now, we, ha- we live in a world where people are trying to make up their own ways all the time. But we don't get to do that. The old way, Sinai, will never save. It leaves people in a place of terror and fear. Zion, on the other hand, we come we walk to this mountain and we can even ascend to the top and we sit in his presence in his city. Members, citizens, acceptable to, to, to him. Because we have been cleansed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We endure in faith together because we are the people of Zion, not of Sinai. And then third, the third point I would point you to, Christians endure in faith together. As we look forward to the completion of God's unshakable kingdom. Now we've already been, we've kind of been looking back and we've kind of been seeing how we're approaching this and how it's how it's beginning to be formed out for us. But now the author is going to turn us and look forward into time. See, again, one of these see to it phrases, right? Like we have this responsibility to, to one another. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, that's Moses. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So if they didn't escape and they got the punishment coming to them because they didn't, they didn't listen and they rejected Moses, what will, they, what, will, what will happen if we reject the one who's warning us from heaven? We, would, we should more expect judgment. At that time, his voice shook the earth back on the days of Sinai. At Sinai, man, thunder, lightning, trumpets blaring, right? Like power on display. He shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's a, there's a big shaking coming, he says. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Christians endure in faith together as we look forward to the completion of God's unshakable kingdom. We are looking beyond Sinai. We're looking into Zion and we're saying, yes, I long for the day that everything is stable. We're standing on a rock. It was interesting to me as I was listening to Billy pray and praying along with him. He's talking about that God's word would be a rock test, that we would be stable. That's language that's very common inside the church. Where do we find that stuff at? Well, certainly there's the passage that, the, that Jesus talked about building your house on the sand or building your house on the rock. But all the way through the word, God is stable. He's an unchanging, no shifting shadow. He is stable. And here we see it again. He is building a kingdom that will not be shaken. There's this, there's this reality that we're living here in this place looking forward to that day for the things that can be shaken to be shaken away. 
so that we can live in the place where nothing shakes. And while we endure, while we wait for that, we strive for peace, we strive for holiness, we, we keep watch on one another, we see to it that we don't reject the truth of the one who's warning us from heaven. But this is not the finish line. This is not the finish line. We have not arrived. We have so much more to look forward to. The the, the days ahead, what what he is bringing to us is so much better. Raymond Brown captures this sense of the already not yet kind of reality. We're in his kingdom, but we're not yet at his kingdom. We're enjoying now. Like as, as as um, As we strive for peace with one another, as we strive for holiness together, as we keep watch on one another, that's we're actually enjoying the fruits of eternity in some way, even now. We're, we're enjoying the fruits of God's kingdom right here on this earth, even though we're surrounded by shaking. Raymond Brown calls out this already not yet perspective really well, I think. He, he says, believers do not dismiss the past. We don't ignore what happened. They inherit its treasures and witness its fulfillment. The saints of former days were on a pilgrimage. They stood on tiptoe, their eyes fixed on the distant horizon. In one sense, Christians share their anticipation, knowing the best is yet to be. The best is yet to be. But in another sense, they have arrived. Their feet have stood within the gates. We're enduring in faith because we are the people of Zion. We are enduring in faith because we are citizens of the city of God. We have come to him the judge of all. We are here. We belong to the kingdom of Christ right now. This is why we endure. This is what we endure for. But while we know in faith we already belong, we endure in that faith looking forward to the day when it's finally and fully consummated, when God steps back in, not as a suffering, or Jesus steps back in, not as a suffering servant, but a righteous king. And every knee bows, and every tongue confesses. Brothers and sisters, we will see our Savior with our own eyes. As real as me, standing before you, as real as you, sitting in front of me. We will see him. Now I'm imagining at some point we're falling on our face. I don't think we'll have a lot of choice because I think we will be in awe. But the firstborn among many brothers, the one whose blood was sprinkled and speaks a better word. I can just imagine him coming to us and saying, stand up, stand up and and look. Let me wipe away your tears. Let me me remind you that death is no more. Let Let me remind you that all the pain and all the hurt and all the suffering and all the struggle and all the shaking that you're surrounded by is finished. It's done. We get to be like this forever. And nothing can change it. Nothing can take it away. All the striving. You've entered into rest. All the pressing. All the pursuing. The race is finished. Sit down and rest. Catch your breath. Just keep your eyes on me. Man, I long for that day that the endurance ends and we step into this completed, 
unshakable kingdom. Never to feel another thing shake around us ever again. Endure to that day, he calls us to. Endure to that day. It's coming. It will come. It's a certainty that it comes. And then he closes this passage, this, this section. He says, Christians endure in faith, in, in, in faith and lives of grateful worship because God truly is glorious. In verse 28, we'll pick it up. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful. This idea of gratefulness is satisfaction that we're not, we're not running around trying to accumulate still. We're not running around trying to build a life now. We're not running around trying to build a kingdom now. The kingdom is come. His name is Jesus. And, and we have received it. We have this kingdom that's ours. Not to be taken away. It can't be taken away. We watch one another. We strive for peace. We strive for holiness. We keep an eye on one another. We make sure our brothers and sisters continue in the grace of God. We ensure that our brothers and sisters aren't aren't filled with a root of bitterness. We ensure our brothers and sisters don't go out like Esau. We ensure that we run in this way, pursuing him and running after him, but not building a kingdom because the kingdom that's come is ours, and we're grateful for it. We're grateful for it. It's a position of satisfaction. It's a position of recognizing I've got what I need. Is that really what marks our life? Are we really living as a satisfied people because we belong to an unshakable kingdom? I pray it is. Grateful gratitude coming from this heart that recognizes its needs have been met. Worship. And the word isn't us standing around in a circle singing songs. The word that's used there is, is, is about service. We're, we're, we, therefore, let us be grateful And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The idea of worship here is service. Service to God that blesses His people. Service to God that that honors Him. Service to God that makes certain that that His people are blessed and, and have what's necessary so that we come together as His people and enjoy His grace and His goodness among ourselves. This, this beautiful acts, it's, it's about a life given to worship for the good of other people. We can almost go back and start over again. That we endure in this way to glorify God and be good to his people. That's the perspective that's laid out in this idea, this worship that's acceptable to God with reverence and all, always, in, always with the knowledge that he is above us, that he is who he is, a right view of him. Because our God, is a consuming fire. Everyone that opposes him, everyone that rejects him, everyone who doesn't heed these warnings will be consumed. But there's another perspective presented through these verses. This consuming fire doesn't consume everything. It also refines. So everyone that pursues this, endures in faith, pursues him and strives for peace with one another, strives for holiness and strives to watch out for one another and recognizes and and, and is grateful for their position in the kingdom, recognizes that that they hear his voice and they heed his warnings. Rather than being consumed, they'll be refined. They'll be disciplined. 
And we can we turn right back around and we can look back up at Hebrews chapter 12 where it talks about that you endure for discipline's sake. For now, discipline seems painful. It hurts. It's hard. But then it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what he's about doing. He's not after us to destroy us. The warnings are there to keep us in step so that we can run together singing the same cadence to the same glory of our great God. Let's pray.